Hey, this is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream, Refuge Recovery, and Dharma Punks. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying the Dharma. Together, may we create a positive change on this planet. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes. May our paths cross soon. Welcome, everyone. Anyone here for the first time tonight? Welcome. Anybody here for the first time tonight at home? Welcome. Um, I've been doing this Monday night against the stream class here in Los Angeles for, I guess, 17 years, maybe going on 18, uh, something like that. The West Side, Monday nights. Some of you have been coming for a long time. Some of you are new. And my uh, feeling of my, my job as a Dharma teacher, Dharma uh, in this context meaning Buddhism, teacher of Buddhism, <clears throat> is to give the information and the meditation instructions to help support and guide everybody who wants that support and guidance um, with the teachings and the instructions. And then uh, I also just feel like a kind of community organizer of this job, which is to uh, help facilitate you connecting with each other. And so much of practicing Buddhism is about developing community with other people who are interested in awakening and in spiritual practice and and liberation. And um, can be challenging at Buddhist groups, at meditation, centers to actually connect with other people. It's even more challenging um, when half of the community is at home on Zoom <laughs> and uh, kind of hard to, hard to meet people and connect. So, for, you know, for the last, for, for a long time, I've, you know, people in the room, I ask you to introduce yourself to some people that you don't know yet so that you start to get to know each other over the weeks and months and years of attending. And then at home, I've been putting you into the breakout groups. And it looks like about two-thirds of the people on Zoom choose to join the breakout room and say hello to some people. And about a third of the people are like, fuck that. I, <laughs> I go to Zoom so that I don't have to talk to people <laughs> and uh, I'm not talking to people. And that's okay. Like, I mean, I encourage it, but um, you get to choose. Even in the room, if you don't want to talk to anybody, you don't have to, you know, you know. You can, uh, we should maybe have like a sticker that says, <laughs> don't fucking talk to me. <laughs> don't talk to me. I'm just here for the meditation. Um, and I'm in a series since the beginning of the new calendar year on the life of the Buddha and the core teachings of the Buddha. And tonight our topic is enlightenment. Uh, nirvana, nibbana, liberation—the third, third noble truth—and so I'll I'll give a little bit of backstory. But for the introductions, um, I'm just curious: what do you what do you think the potential for us humans is? How how free do you think we can get? Like, what's your sense? Um, do you think that people can get fully enlightened, or is, do you or do you kind of? Feel a little skeptical, like maybe enlightenment's a myth. Um, like if, uh, like sometimes I think about it, my mind rationally, statistically, like by what percentage could we alleviate our suffering? Like, is it a hundred percent? Is it ninety percent? Is it 
10%? Like, where are you at? Honestly, and your current confidence, like maybe you're brand new and you're like, I don't have any hope at all. Um, or maybe you've been practicing for a while and you're like, I've seen a little bit of progress. I'm suffering a little bit less. So I think like maybe we could cut this shit in half. And how amazing would that be? Even if there wasn't a hundred percent liberation, but if you could suffer half as much as you suffer these days, if you could cut it in half, like sign me up. <laughs> Even if it's only half and not a hundred percent, 50% less suffering, I'll take it. But you know, the Buddha's teaching is a hundred percent less suffering, the total eradication of suffering. And so I'm gonna talk about that tonight. And you don't have to believe that. And that's why I want to set this up where like introduce yourself to some people and I'll put you in breakout rooms and kind of where's your own concept these days on uh, how free do you think we can get, uh, which means you, yourself, your own freedom. Uh, it also means theoretically, like if somebody was really serious about meditation and renunciation and took this Buddhist path seriously, way more seriously than you take it. How free do you think the potential uh, is to get to get free? So I'll open the breakout rooms and try to find some people that you don't know so well to have this short conversation with. How many people believe in total and complete liberation, freedom from suffering? How many people think like maybe 10% improvement <laughs> or 50% or some, somewhere? I mean, it's part of the conversation that we'll have tonight of uh, what does it mean? What's liberation mean? And, and this um, Buddhist model, the way it's recorded anyways, as sort of a perfection model. Um, and I think it's worthy of questioning is total perfection possible or are we just talking about an incredible improvement uh, in how we relate to pain and pleasure and impermanence and all of the things that we suffer about so we'll have that conversation after the meditation um, so let's you know certainly whatever freedom we're going to experience is going to come um, in, in, in a big part from training our mind in meditation, training our mind to see more clearly and respond more wisely to reality. Um, so we always meditate together. So find a way to sit that's upright and relaxed and trying to find a posture that feels sustainable. And as you're ready, allowing your Eyes to be gently closed. Bringing an attitude of friendliness, an internal intention to be kind to yourself, to your mind to whatever sensations and emotions you experience. The intention to meet it all with acceptance and kindness, friendliness.
establishing mindfulness, the practice of giving our full attention to the present time experience of the body and the heart and the mind, the sense doors, the here and now. So I'm trying not to indulge in thinking about the future or thinking about the past, but using our mind to think about the present, to bring full awareness to what's happening right now. The sounds, smells, tastes, images, thoughts, feelings, and sensations that are here. Although mindfulness is ultimately inclusive of our whole being, our whole experience, it's usually good to start with a narrow focus, mindfulness of the breath. Letting everything else recede to the background of awareness, bringing the sensations that the breath creates to the foreground of awareness. Breathing in, receive the breath, feel the sensations created at the nostrils, chest, belly. Breathing out, feel the sensations, give your full attention to this breath. Disengage from the thoughts in the mind, let them be in the background. Some find it helpful to note in as they breathe in, out as they exhale, to track the experience of breathing in and out. We'll place more awareness in the sensations than on the label of in or out. Tuning our awareness to what the body is naturally doing. No need to control or manipulate the breath in any way. Let your body breathe its own natural rhythm. Your only task is to meet the breath with awareness, to receive it.
Of course, our attention is naturally drawn back into thinking. And we're not trying to stop the mind from thinking. But when you find yourself engaged in a thought, a plan, or a memory, return to the breath, disengage, come back to the present time experience. Let the thought be in the background, see how awareness is different than the content of the mind, the story, the plan. Awareness can be directed. Keep directing your awareness back to the body, breathing.
And the attention is drawn away from the body breathing, perhaps just acknowledging it, hearing, thinking, perhaps some other sensation in the body is drawing your attention away from the breath. I want to get too rigid about yanking the attention back to the breath. Just hang out with what's calling for your attention. Sensation in the body and the knee and the back. Perhaps some emotions or some thoughts that are persistent. Mindfulness is ultimately inclusive of our whole experience. Not just concentrating on the breath, but opening awareness to all of the phenomena of the present. Thoughts arising, proliferating in the mind perhaps. sensations and emotions felt in the body. And the sense doors, sounds, smells, tastes, images, seeing. Become aware and investigate the impermanent nature, the changing reality of everything that you're experiencing, every thought, every sensation, every sound arising and passing. Rather than having a narrow, focused attention, have a open, inclusive attention. Spacious. Just sensations arising, passing. Some pleasant, some unpleasant, some neutral. Just thoughts coming and going like clouds in a open spacious sky rather than tight, focused, make more room. Allow your awareness to be vast, fill the whole room with your awareness.
This body breathes all by itself. You don't need to control the breath. The heart beats, the mind thinks. And awareness knows, receives. Sensations, the emotions, the mental proliferation. When you become aware of unpleasant experiences, do your best to be friendly towards them. You have an instinctual habit of meeting pain with aversion. 
Try inclining your heart and mind towards kindness and acceptance, compassion towards the unpleasant sensations or emotions or thoughts. We become aware of pleasant experiences. We often also can see the tendency, habitual, reactive tendency of clinging, of craving. Incline your heart and mind the intention to let go. Softening the belly, the shoulders, the jaw. Learning to meet pleasant experiences with non-clinging.
rather than ignoring our minds, including turning towards observing the mind. Seeing how the mind continues to think about the future, the past, hope, fear, worry, doubt, desires, resentments, all by itself. It's like the lungs breathe all by themselves. like the heart beats. Watch how the mind thinks without any volition from you.
a lot of you um, have been coming regularly, and so you're aware of where we're at in the teachings and the uh, the story of the Buddha's life. I'll give a, a quick review for those of you who are coming for the first time tonight or uh, miss some of it. When um, Siddhartha was about 27 years old, he left home to go out and seek some kind of spiritual liberation. He uh, felt that he had hit a dead end with the material world. With um, he, he had abundance, he had luxury, he had wealth, he had power, he had sensual pleasures, delights. And he saw that it was um, pretty empty as far as creating true happiness, satisfaction. And saw that there was still a level of dissatisfaction that no matter how many uh, desires were satisfied, there was always more, more craving, more just this core feeling of dissatisfaction that no amount of money, power, sense pleasures could satisfy. And so, um, went out on this spiritual quest to see, is, is there a way for us humans to actually be content? Is it possible to be at peace? Because the material, because, you know, so often we think like, well, I'd be happy if I had it all, right? How many times a day does your mind tell you that you'd be happy if you had more stuff, <laughs> more money, more power, more attention, better relationships, some external refuge, something, if I just had this or that. And he's like, I kind of got it all. And the shit doesn't work. So maybe there's a spiritual, maybe there's a, a wisdom that uh, would alleviate this feeling of dissatisfaction, of suffering, of un, uneasiness. And he went out and he studied with all of the highest spiritual teachers of his time, uh, in the ancient Brahmanic tradition, we now call Hinduism. Uh, this is 2,600 years ago. He's born and, and raised in northern, what's considered northern India, now, now uh, southern Nepal. And he goes and he travels through northern India and he meets the gurus and he studies with this guru and he studies with that guru. And, um, and he has these amazing meditation experiences that lead to bliss and lead to these really cool meditation experiences. And his, his teachers say, like, you got it. Like, you experienced it. That's what I'm teaching you. And he said, that's what you're teaching me? I, I didn't come here to get high. <laughs> I'm looking for something more than a temporary meditative phenomena. I'm looking for freedom. You just taught me how to get concentrated and so that all of the suffering temporarily went away and I, you know, hyperventilated and I got a head rush and it was cool for 10 minutes. But I'm still attached. I'm still taking everything personal. I'm still aversive to pain. I'm still in this craving, this dissatisfaction. And I'm looking for something much more uh, embodied, much more um, permanent than just a temporary meditative relaxation or blissful uh, experience. And through trial and error and deep uh, investigation, 
he realized that rather than meditating away everything, and so you know, focusing the attention so much on, on a single point that you finally experience some joy or some bliss, he said, what if I just do mindfulness? And it was mindfulness, present time, non-judgmental, investigative kind awareness, the kind of instructions that we were doing tonight. He said, this technique actually brought me to deliverance, to freedom. And he woke up, he, he came to what we call nirvana, what we're going to talk about tonight. And then he went out to find um, who he was going to share it with. And it, at first it was a little hesitant. I don't know if anybody will understand this. This is very radical. What, I'm, what I've experienced and what I'm proposing is incredibly uh, radical because it's not actually pleasant all of the time. That idea that uh, awakening or liberation or enlightenment, whatever we want to call it, is going to feel good all of the time. He's like, it doesn't actually. What I had to learn, what mindfulness taught me was how to be at ease in the midst of pain, how to be at peace with my self-centered mind and not take it personally, how to let go of this and this totally, he called it against the stream, this counter instinctual internal transformation of meeting pleasure, not with attachment and clinging and taking it hostage, but actually allowing pleasure to arise and pass, non-attached appreciation. He said, and that was the key that set me free, learning to let go and have compassion for pain and, and, and not believe that I am my mind. Like in the meditation instruction tonight, where I was doing that sort of pointing out of like, just look at your own mind that you take so personal, that we all take so personal. And it just thinks all by itself. How many thoughts came into your head tonight that you weren't intentionally thinking? Before mindfulness, we tend to just believe it and take it all personal and think, that's me. I am thinking about sex or food or resentments or whatever you're, whatever's coming into your mind. Tonight, my mind had some sex and some food and some resentments. And just observing that, I'm like, oh, look at, you know, I'm not intentionally thinking about any of this shit, but the mind is just wandering to the future, to the past. So he came to his awakening and he went out and he found his friends that he'd been studying with and practicing with. And, um, and then the last couple of weeks we we're talking about they're in the, the deer park and he's sitting there and he's explaining fire. I think we're okay. It's, there's an apartment over there. They, they're probably cooking. Um, <laughs> I used to live in there. He's like a little steam sets it off. Um, fire. <laughs> actually, fi fire is, it's such a good prompt actually, because <laughs> Part of what, where we're getting, you know, he's sitting there and he's explaining it to these guys and he's saying there's these four truths. The first truth is dukkha, suffering. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. The second truth is tanha, craving. The cause of suffering is, is our craving, our clinging, our attachment, our aversion. The third truth where we're at tonight, and again, kind of picturing him 
newly enlightened, trying to explain his experience, his newfound awakening to his friends. He says the tr third truth is Nibbana. And the reason that fire is a good prompt, because this term Nibbana that, you know, I'm using interchangeably with freedom, with uh, enlightenment, with liberation, with awakening. But the word that he used was Nibbana. And Nibbana is a term that means um, to remove from the fire. It's an Indian cooking term, actually. It says it's done cooking, take it out of the oven, take it off of the fire, take it off of the flame. The, the Nibbana is the extinguishing, is the cooling of that which has been burning us. And so we think of the uh, suffering, first noble truth, normal, everyone is suffering on some level or another, some time or another. And uh, think of suffering every time you're suffering. And how do you suffer? You suffer from clinging and clinging burns, right? Every time you get attached to an impermanent thing, and most of you've heard, uh, it's the rope burns of I'm, I'm attached to this thing that's being pulled out of my grasp. I can't keep it because it's impermanent. I can't keep anything because it's all impermanent, but I, it doesn't stop me from holding on. <laughs> but what happens when I hold on is I get burned. So he's saying Nibbana is no longer getting burned by attachment. That, that ouch of I'm fucking holding on to something that's impossible to keep. And that's, you know, that's the, the hard truth is that everything is impossible to keep. Every experience, every relationship eventually, even if you have that wonderful long-term happily ever after relationship, one of us is going to die first and there's going to be loss. I guess the only way you don't is if you die first <laughs> and they deal with your loss, but it's just everything. And uh, the other cause of suffering we talked about last week, the aversion, the pushing against the hatred, hatred burns. I hate pain. Resentments, they're all like this experience of, um, of ouch. And it's like a flame. It's like a, um, it's a way that we're burning. And so he uses this term nirvana. It's possible to no longer get burned, to no longer experience the rope burns of clinging, the burning of anger, of hatred, of aversion, of resentment. It's possible to remove ourselves from that which has been, we've been experiencing as suffering. And I started tonight by asking you, what do you, what do you think? You think it's possible to, uh, you know, it's a rhetorical question just for you to think about, to actually not cling, to practice non-attached appreciation. And non-attachment does not mean detachment. What's being said here in non-attachment is learning to experience whatever we're experiencing. Feel your feelings. <laughs> Not detached 
observation of your feelings, but feel your emotions, feel your sensations, be aware of what your mind is doing without clinging to it as I, me, mine, without taking hostages. Be in your relationships in a loving, connected presence without trying to control each other by, you know, which is what attachment really is, trying to control, manipulate, uh, make somebody be more permanent in the kind of permanent mood that you want them to be in, <laughs> in the permanent, loving, generous attention towards you all the time only, rather than the reality of the complexity of relationships, the complexity of people. And so, you know, we, we, get, we burn ourselves with clinging, we burn ourselves with hatred, resentment, and we burn ourselves with this constant, incessant self-centeredness. I, me, mine. How many times do we think about ourselves a, a day, an hour, a minute? How self-centered, and not self-centered in like a clinical, like narcissistic, but just as a normal human, the mind thinks about itself all the time. Just what the human mind does. It's a survival instinct. It's evolutionary biology, probably. It's not your fault that you are totally fucking self-centered. It's just the truth for all of us. It's just what the human mind does thinks about itself and its survival and where's the next pleasure and how do we avoid pain and we should worry and we should resent and we should, right? All of those messages that our minds give us, self-centered, self-cherishing, bad fucking advice. And it burns and it feels so good. You know, he's talking about Nibbana. You know that experience that ordinary, everyday, hopefully you have this experience sometimes where you're not suffering. And you're not in total self-centeredness and you're not in total avoidance and you're just being at ease. You have any experience recently? I'm just like, I'm cool, I'm chilling. And chilling is a good translation for Nibbana. <laughs> not burning. Chilling, not you know, and you know, and the and you're when you're in craving, you're not chilling. When you're in hatred, you're not chilling. You might use that term. Just sitting here seething. How you doing? <laughs> chilling. <laughs> Super fucking chill. But the actual experience of being just at ease, just not needing it to be any different than it is. E you know, and then the advanced levels, because that's easy when you're comfortable. That's easy in that moment when everything's just right. And so we all have that experience sometimes of like, everything's just right right now. And so I'm not suffering. But as soon as shit doesn't go your way, as soon as, you know, you don't get what you want, you lose what you want to keep, you experience some pain, you... The pleasure ends too quickly. The challenges come up in life. 
that's when it gets way harder to chill, to nibbana, to relax into. Right now, it's like this and it's super unpleasant and I'm totally at ease with it. And this is where I feel like the Buddha's hesitance in trying to teach his awakening was because my sense is that he thought he would be able to come to an awakening where like everything was really pleasant all of the time. And then he realized, oh, I came to this Nibbana, this freedom from getting burned, but it hasn't ended all of the pain of existence. And it hasn't gotten rid of my self-centered mind or my afflictive emotions. All it has taught me is how to be at ease with the self-centered, afflictive human condition. The end of suffering is totally normal human condition that's just not taking it so personal. Makes sense. And then I think he was hesitant in the beginning to say, who, you know, this doesn't sound that great. This isn't the bliss that all those gurus were promising. This isn't constant joy and total abundance. This is like just learning to live life on life's terms. This is just learning to be with the reality of our humanness without making it worse. It is presented as perfect enlightenment. The third noble truth, total Nibbana. And there's two levels. There's in this lifetime, and then we'll talk about death and rebirth and the reincarnation model that it's taught within. But it's perfect that he's he's telling his homies, he's like, here and now in this lifetime, we can meet every shred of unpleasantness with compassion, and there will be zero suffering about the pain. There'll still be pain, there'll still be unpleasantness, but there'll be zero dukkha. We will no longer get burned. He said, we can learn perfectly to meet every pleasant experience without attachment. And we can learn to not believe the hype that the mind creates about how personal everything is all the time. To see through this self-making, self-centered mentality that we're all born with. And that by doing that, we will be free, Nibbana. We'll learn to be at ease, chill, cool. That's another good translation for Nirvana. Be cool. Be free from getting burned, be chill, be cool with what is. Not just when it's easy, but also when it's really fucking difficult, when it's really painful, in the midst of loss, in the midst of praise and blame, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, fame and disrepute, be at ease, be cool, chill. Nibbana. And it's fucking hard, right? None of us can do it. 
<laughs> right? Or we wouldn't probably wouldn't be here if you were totally enlightened already. You'd be like, I'm not going to that fucking class. <laughs> but we're all here because we want to be more chill. We want to be more cool. We want to be less hot, less burning, less suffering in our hearts, in our minds. He says, there's four levels of enlightenment, of, um, of progress, of um, liberation possible for those of us who take this eightfold path seriously. And that's preview next week. We, you know, he says, yes, enlightenment's possible. The path to enlightenment is the eightfold path. He said, and there's four different levels of attainment that people can reach in this lifetime. The first level is called stream entry. And when someone has meditated deeply, practiced renunciation well, uh, embodied the, the Dharma, really taken this thing seriously, so far that they have broken their attachment to like religiosity and the rites and rituals and the dogma of being, you know, the identification that we can take on of like, I'm a Buddhist. And I'm a good Buddhist and y'all aren't that good at it. And that's sort of like clinging to your spiritual religious ideals. He says, one of the first things that gets broken in awakening is that identification. You no longer are worried about being a good religious person. You realize it's all really fucking normal. So interesting how humans have this tendency to project uh, spirituality into like form and custom and, uh, and even garb, you know, like when you see someone in robes and you just see like a monk in robes and you're like, wow, how fucking spiritual. It's like a holy person. I remember one time I was at this big Buddhist gathering and there's all of these Western teachers in street clothes. It was a thing for Ramdas, and all of the old school teachers were there, and and um, they're all in street clothes, you know, wearing their whatever hippie garb they wear, and uh, and then there's one guy in like saffron. He's in he's in robes, and he's he's holding. He's a Hindu guy. He's the guy that had introduced Ramdas to his guru Neem Karoli Baba. He's holding a trident, like super, <laughs> super like sadhu. And I was with a buddy, you know, one of my close friends, but he was really new to, to practicing spirituality. And he was like, that guy's the real deal. <laughs> like those other guys are just like wearing t-shirts, but that guy's got robes on. And then it turned out that the guy that he was talking about had just come back from like a 20 year crack run. <laughs> wow. And just put his robes back on and was playing the guru role. But these other guys had been for the last 20, 30 years meditating every day, doing service, really embodying in a totally normal Western kind of garb. But this guy was wearing the thing. And immediately you're like, he's the most spiritual dude here. It's like, no, that guy will steal your wallet. (laughs) He dressed up like that to con you. (laughs) 
true story. <laughs> Mostly true. Was that, was that uh, no names, Russ. No names. <laughs> I'm going to talk a whole bunch of shit <laughs> with some anonymity for the <laughs> guilty. So the first level of stream entry being that you're no longer so identified with like I'm spiritual, I'm religious, and, and that you see through the I, me, mine, you realize this is not, this mind is not self. It's not who I am. I have a mind and my mind works for me and it's not who I am. Uh, and it continues, you know, Mara is part of the mind. It's continues to give bad advice, experience afflictive emotions, but our identification with it uh, is broken. So at stream entry, there's one more insight that I'm forgetting right now. But anyway, so this first level, and again, this gets, gets into reincarnation, it says when you reach this first level and you've practiced deeply and you've seen through the self and you no longer so clinging to, to your being religious or um, he says, at that point, you will only have seven incarnations left. Now, which is a good time for us to point out that what the Buddha is teaching is that nirvana is not only freedom here and now, but that what it means is that you don't have to keep coming back. You can end the cycle of rebirth, why it's called the deathless the state of no longer having to incarnate with the bigger picture saying that you keep coming back until you get it right. You're here to heal. You're here to get free and you keep coming back. You keep reincarnating as long as you don't extinguish greed, hatred, and delusion because greed, clinging, craving, hatred, aversion, uh, delusion, self-centered belief in a permanent entity here, taking everything personal, is what fuels rebirth. And as long as you still have that, you will have a, another birth over and over. So at stream entry, he's saying you're close enough that you'll only have to take birth seven more times. Which is interesting. Maybe that's true. Maybe, you know, this, this opens up a bigger conversation about how many of us actually believe in reincarnation. A lot of us Western Buddhists have some healthy skepticism about it, or, or maybe even uh, unhealthy uh, rejection, contempt prior to even considering that that might be what's happening here. Uh, doesn't match up with your, you know, third grade science class or <laughs> wherever you formed your opinion, your nihilistic materialist views. I'm not talking to you, Russ. That was fifth grade for me. <laughs> fifth grade. It is interesting to look at what we believe and why, like whether it's like all of our religious conditioning or some, you know, education that we got or some, you know, 
lyric in a rock band that was just like, yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> that's what I believe. It was revealed on LSD in 76. <laughs> Uh, second, so stream entry. And then this next level of awakening where you will only have one, uh, it's called once returner. So seven incarnations or one incarnation. You're almost there. You've practiced deeply. You've lived the five precepts. You've meditated. You've seen through the self-making tendency of the mind. Uh, you're getting close to freedom, but you have enough karma left that you have to take birth one more time. And who knows if that doesn't necessarily have to be a long incarnation. I've sometimes used this once returner, maybe um, for why, why children die young or why, why people sometimes we, we think it's such a tragedy when people don't live a long life. Uh, and from this Buddhist perspective, I've, and I'm skeptical of it because it comforts me, but consider that actually Possibly people who die young just didn't have that much karma to burn off. And they only needed a short incarnation, that they were the once returners who needed to come back and do a little bit of time, and then they were done. Probably not, but maybe, <laughs> depending on the circumstances of their life and their death and all of that. And then there's the non-returner who has seen through, has developed the wisdom, and um, just has to play out the rest of the karma of this life. And at death, they will attain full awakening. Now, they're not totally there yet, just have to play out the life. And then there's the arahant, fully awakened, here and now, totally liberated, but will only, and there's no more karma to purify. They will just live this life as an enlightened being, an arahant, fully liberated being. And um, they will live this life as long as the body holds up. And it's not like, well, I'm enlightened, so I'm just going to slough off this mortal coil and be done with it. Yeah, you know, as long as the body. And so this was the Buddha's experience. He's fully enlightened and he lived another 40 years. No more karma, not creating karma, not, you know, you know, burning off karma. Karma as greed, hatred, and delusion coming to fruition is done. But still, as long as your body is, is alive, you live it out and you experience freedom the whole time. Please, Brad. Are these, are these, those are the four levels or are you still at level one? Those are the four. Those are the four. Stream entry. One, three, one more in seven incarnations, one incarnation. This is your last one. Um, Arahant, four levels, fully, fully done now. Seven, one, and non returner and Arahant. The different, do you get the difference between that? It's both you're done in this lifetime, you don't have to come back, but non returner is you're still going kind of to the end of this life as your practice. The Arahant is you're done now but you'll still live as long as your body lives, but no more karma to purify. Please. 
Well, let me share some scripture with you, brother. <laughs> because this is a hard question. Um, because it's not heaven. There is heaven in Buddhism. There's a heaven realm. In samsara, there are six realms of existence. There's heaven realms, hell realms, the human realm that we're supposedly in, animal realms, hungry ghost realms, and jealous gods. So those are the six different realms of existence. So there's heaven, but heaven, all of samsara, the human, just like us, the human realm and the animal realm are the only ones visible to the human eye from this cosmology. Um, but everything is impermanent in all those realms. In, there's hell realms in Buddhist cosmology, and you do some time there, but you get out. You reincarnate after. You might take an incarnation in hell. You might take an incarnation in heaven. But you will. it's temporary. It's impermanent. Nirvana, so if you can imagine... Imagine a, um, a wheel with six different realms. Nirvana is off of the wheel. You're no longer reincarnating into heaven temporarily or hell or human or animal or these ghosts or jealous God realms. You are done with samsara. So here's what the Buddha says about it. And it's confusing. It's not a very satisfying, to me, 30 years later, I still don't like it. I want something more tangible. But intentionally, the Buddha doesn't give us anything tangible because it's not tangible what he's talking about. He says, truly, there is a realm where there is neither the solid nor the fluid, neither heat nor motion, neither this world nor any other world, nor sun nor moon. This I call neither arising nor passing away, neither standing still nor being born nor dying. There is neither a foothold nor development nor any basis. This is the end of suffering. There is an unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. If there was not this unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, and unformed, escape from the world of the born, originated, the created, the formed would not be possible. But since there is an unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed, therefore it is escape as possible from the world, from the, of the world of the born, originated, created, and formed. So he's saying that you can get free. In another place, it says, um, you know, when asked about what nirvana, is it heaven? Is it, is it myself that goes to, you know, do I go to nirvana? And it's something like a, a realm of neither consciousness nor a lack of consciousness, right? Because we all want to know that, like, well, will I be aware that I'm in nirvana? My self-centeredness wants to know. <laughs> Am I? And it's like, but at this point, it's like, you're not worried about the I anymore, the self. And he says, there, there will neither be consciousness nor an absence of consciousness, which is just like, oh, you don't want to answer the question. All right. <laughs> You don't want to tell me, just tell me. You're not going to tell me. I mean, it almost sounds better to be reincarnated and be having the joy versus just being dead. You just come back and be 
Well, two things. Um, one is interesting just to look at your own feeling about better to exist than not consciously exist. And how much attachment maybe is fueling that, like I'd rather be here and suffer than not suffer. Because what's being said here is that actually it's possible to end suffering and that uh, any attachments to reincarnation is an attachment to suffering. I want to be here. I want to keep suffering. I'm attached to my suffering. It's all I've ever known. I'm not ready to not suffer. Fuck that. Right? And so to look at that, because I'm with you on some level there. I think most of us are of like, oh, non sounds like you don't exist in the, in this form anyways. And that sounds terrifying, but also what's saying, what is being said is I'm, I'm so attached to suffering. I can't imagine not suffering. And the Buddha doesn't do what most religions do of say like, yeah, and it's heaven, it's like happiness and it's pleasure and it's joy. And you just, you know, you just get to chill with all your homies and the afterlife and He's like, if that were true, I would tell you that, but that's not what's actually happening here. We're in this cycle and that it's possible to get free from this cycle if you would rather be free than continue suffering. How could a person up there never been to the end truly no. For every different religion. You, you mean you're talking about why, how the Buddha knows this stuff? Yeah, why, you know, yeah. It's said that as part of his awakening, he uh, remembered all of his past lives and was able to see how the whole process had brought him to this life. And, you know, that this is something that is, you and I can't know it with our own, you know, it's not something you can think your way to, but part of the full awakened mind is that you see clearly, oh, this is what has been happening this whole time. So it's sort of like it's revealed to him in his awakening and, and also that he's able to recall his past lives and the process that brought him to this life and that he knows I'm, I'm now done with this process of rebirth. But it's a good question, but that's the, that's the answer. That's the Buddhist answer. Makes a little more sense to me than even though I came in here with heaven belief and if no one's been to heaven, how do they know about heaven? Right. Yeah. A couple more questions, Russ? Uh, who said something about the joyful participation in the sorrows of the world? I honestly don't remember. And what does that mean? If you know, maybe that's what we were just talking about. The people who want to participate in the sorrows of the world in a joyful way. Right. I'm not familiar with the quote, but it might be Thich Nhat Hanh. And the second question is uh, all those realms. I always thought that was the Bajriana and not the Thai forest traditions. Were you just. No, it's, it's in the Theravada, it's okay. in the suttas. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it is its core Theravadan cosmology. In the Vajrayana and some of the Mahayana schools, they make cool paintings of it. 
<laughs> you know, like they're really good at art, but it, you know, if you look at the suttas, it is in the core uh, Theravadan understanding of the cosmology of samsara. So it's 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 attributed to the early teachings of the Buddha. Yeah, please. Um, I was curious. Um, I mean, I would imagine that if you ever found yourself in the place of being an arhant, uh, the impetus to stick around in the body might be, I would presume, to kind of, you know, maybe help other people find relief from suffering, like the Buddha did. <clears throat> but um, I mean, I'm I'm wondering if if he ever said anything about um, you know inhabiting a space of no longer suffering and clinging being so essentially unrelatable that. Uh, it might be kind of useful to like incur some incidental suffering just so you could like help other people understand uh, you know, how to awaken. Doesn't seem that he said anything like that. <laughs> um, but again, like with all of these questions, I think it's interesting for us to look at like, oh, well, why, why does that occur to me? Like how much of that is coming from my own clinging to existence, my own clinging to suffering or uh you know some of the bodhisattva kind of like keep coming back for the benefit of all sentient beings which is partially motivated by compassion but also has some attachment in it and um the buddha's life is a great example and we'll continue with the story in the coming weeks of uh he was totally free according to this uh totally free and he didn't have to have any suffering in order to inspire millions of people. And here we are 2,600 years ago, still inspired by someone who got totally free and didn't come back and was just done. And that when you, know, you get that free and you inspire so many people, you don't need to hold on. You don't need to keep suffering. You don't need to come back. You can just say, this shit's possible. I did it. Now carry on. <laughs> right uh do what i've done and so we're out of time i wanted to get more a little bit more skeptical about some of this stuff <laughs> i feel like i landed too much in the um this is the teaching uh, and it is the teaching i'll just end with this i'm over three decades into my own practice and study of buddhism and I started from a place of immense suffering and these, this, this um, idea of the six realms sometimes is talked about not as literal realms of reincarnation, but as uh, human mind states. So I feel like I came to the practice of meditation um, from a hell realm. Um, there's also the realm of the hungry ghost, which was perpetual intense craving, um, like I experienced as a drug addict. And so I feel like I came to the Dharma in this suffering of hell and hungry ghost realm of craving. And that in that first decade of meditation and recovery and service and renunciation, that I felt like I sort of became human again. Like I escaped the hell realms and, and sort of found some balance of like, yeah, there's joy and there's sorrow, but it's not constant suffering anymore. The Dharma has alleviated a lot of that, but I'm also not free. And then in the second decade and third decade, seeing like, oh, I'm making a little, I'm having more, a bit more compassion for myself and others, a bit less resentment, a bit more 
natural and authentic generosity and, and seeing the progress over the years of practice. Um, and so I feel like my suffering has decreased by like close to 90% from where I started. I don't suffer all that much anymore. I mean, but, you know, still, there's still a little bit. There's still some remnants that I, you know, occasionally suffer. And talking to my girlfriend earlier and about, I was going to talk about telling her, I was going to talk about this tonight. And she's like, she's like, you're the only person I've ever met that doesn't suffer a lot. Um, you know, and which I thought was like, oh, that's pretty good. Like she's been in a relationship with me for two years. And if anybody knows, she knows. And she's, and it's because of the practice. I suffer a little bit, but not a lot. And most of us are suffering, you know, most people are suffering quite a lot. And especially your partners really see how much you suffer or don't suffer. And so I landed this place of a, a lot of faith that this shit definitely works slowly over the period of years and years and years, we make progress slowly. There's no quick fix. It's not like, you know, it's not like you go to a retreat or two and then you're enlightened. The Dalai Lama at one point was asked, how long does it take to get enlightened? And he said, just check in on your progress once every decade or so. <laughs> Commit, meditate every day, practice the five precepts, live the Dharma in your life, and then check in in 10 years. Am I suffering less? Am I suffering less? Am I suffering less over the decades rather than over the weeks or months? So we'll end it there tonight. I'm sorry for going a little bit over. I have a lot more to say about enlightenment. Maybe I'll talk a little bit more about it next week. Um, but next week, we will open to the Eightfold Path, and I think I'll do an overview of the Eightfold Path, and then um, come back around to spending a, at least a week on each factor of the Eightfold Path. So over the next eight weeks, nine weeks, we'll be talking about the Eightfold Path and how the Buddha taught it and how we can apply it to our lives. Class is done by donation in the Buddhist tradition of generosity. These teachings are freely offered to you. And um, it's entirely up to you whether you freely offer some donations to the meditation center. Uh, it's the, the tradition is to not, you know, to get out of the fee for service and commerce capitalism of monetizing, you know, spirituality and just say it's freely offered. And you get to choose how you support against the stream, how you support me as a teacher. Um, there's a bowl up front for donations. If you need a ballpark for donation, think about what you pay for a yoga class. Think about what you pay for the other things that you, you know, pay for, even movies these days. And think about making a donation if you, if you feel moved to make a donation um, comparable. Many people in our community choose to become monthly supporters rather than just donating each time you come to class. Um, just consider... I just would like to give this much to the community. And then you can go online, go on the website againstthestream.com and become a monthly supporter. And that way, you know, we can pay the rent every month, whether anybody shows up to class or not, your donations are just coming in and keeps us here and keeps us open, keeps this, the Dharma available in this way based on your voluntary contributions. Um, thank you so much for your generosity in advance. 
And the Memorial Day retreat, we have a three-day silent retreat in May, open for registration. All of the info is on the website. Good way to get at least stream entry, maybe once returner. Um, <laughs> three-day retreat, Nirvana is pretty, almost, almost guaranteed. <laughs> Kurt Cobain. It's in Joshua Tree at the Joshua Tree Retreat Center. So we'll end with that tonight. And uh, offering merit is one of my practices, which believes that there's some um, positive qualities, karmic uh, energy, merit that is created through the practice and discussion of the Buddha Dharma. And so may we gather this merit and offer it, share it, share these blessings outward in all directions. May each one of us get as free as possible in this lifetime. And together, may we create a positive change on this planet. And hope to see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. This is Noah Levine, founder of Against the Stream and Refuge Recovery. If you feel moved to leave a donation, there's a link in the show notes.